Does anyone have any questions about anything to begin with? Yes. Yes. I have a question about the practice. Um, as you know, I've been having a lot of trouble with, with my wandering and that and, yes. and being scattered. And you have recommended to 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 pay attention to the observer. Yeah. And I and it worked quite well today. But my question is does, not, does that not get you closer to a sense of self? And what we're trying to do is to get away from a sense of self? Uh, don't worry about that. You don't need to try to get away from the sense of self. You need to... Actually, what you need to do is to get close enough so that you can see what is really there. Okay. You know, uh, The only way that the sense of self that we have and the idea of self that we have can survive is if you don't look at it too closely. So don't ever worry about that. And as long as you feel like you are a self, then put that feeling and that sense of being somebody who's making decisions and uh, directing things to the service of the practice. It'll all work out. Okay? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not that... Uh, just because we let the cat out of the bag early and told you in advance that you don't really have the kind of self that you think you are, doesn't mean that you have to force yourself to somehow see things different than you usually do. But that's a very good question. Yeah. yeah. Does anyone else have a question? Well, I, I want to, of course, continue with this approach of, of, of putting these Dharma teachings into a positive perspective of what our potential is and what we can become rather than the more traditional negative perspective of, of uh, everything that we aren't. But of course uh, what we the, the potential of what we can become depends on realizing the illusoriness of uh, the way we think things are. <coughs> so, so we, do, so we do need to be really clear on uh, the ideas of emptiness and no self. Because there, you know, if, if, if things weren't empty, then we would be limited in what we could do, right? It's only because things don't have... Uh, that, that the way we see reality is uh, not some representation of a, of a fixed self-existent reality that uh, there is the possibility for transformation. And it is only because that we aren't a single, enduring, separate, and independent self that we can we can use the uh, the the very characteristics that make us human to transform ourselves in such a dramatic way. So um, I just want to know. To, does everyone here really understand emptiness and no self? <laughs> sure. Yes. Well, yes. Good. That was the first week, right? What's that? That was the first week we learned that. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but I just wouldn't want to leave anybody behind. You know, the, 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 uh, and the hard part about it is that it it seems to be so real. It's it's not that hard to really under to understand. Although if you listen to people talk about it who don't understand it, it can sound really confusing. But it's pretty straightforward. So that's why, you know, I just want to check in with you. Anybody would uh, like to hear a little more? Or I would yes. love yes. to hear more than that. <laughs> well. <clears throat> Emptiness and no self are really, you know, they are the same duality that they are all about, right? The self, the self, and the world, and the opposite side of the, the the flip side of the duality of self and world is no self and emptiness, right? So. Uh, And so really, they come down to being the same thing. It's the non-dual emptiness of both the world and the self that we're talking about. And uh, what is empty of what? Everyone should know the answer to this. But what is the world and self empty of? Everything. Inherent quality. Hmm? Uh, an inherent quality of that's a really good start but it kind of unchanging quality of any kind of unchanging permanence that's absolutely true there is there is nothing in the least bit permanent or unchanging about any aspect of the the self and the world Mm -hmm. Um, it's empty of any self-nature of being what it appears to us to be. The world is not what it appears to us to be. That's what it's empty of. Uh, but you know what I mean when I say a self-nature? or self-existent nature. That's good, because that's a very sophisticated concept, self-existence. But, you know, if if you look at the word existence, and this is the one thing that becomes quite confusing when we say there's no self, and that's when people say, well, does that mean I don't exist? Or you say the world is empty, does that mean the world doesn't exist? But, Right away, if we look at it, we start to discover something about the truth of emptiness just in the fact that our thinking is determined by words like exist, which comes from the Latin ex ist, which means to stand outside, and specifically it's in reference to standing outside of the mind, because probably since human beings first invented language, they generated words to distinguish between what was only inside 
an individual's mind. And what, and we said, we would say in English, coming from the Latin, what exists, what stands outside of the mind. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we do this as children. We learn this. You know, you you imagine something, but it doesn't exist, right? Or you have an illusion, but the, the thing that you have the illusion about doesn't exist. Something else may exist that you have mistaken, right? at least in our normal way of thinking. And so we have this idea really deeply embedded in, in our, all of our thinking and our language and everything. Is, but there's this realm in here and there's a completely separate and independent realm out there. And some of the things in here can correspond to things that exist out there, and some of them can, some of them don't. Of course, one of the things that happens in our using this is that we lose that subtle nuance of to exist, meaning only what is what stands outside of the mind. And so we apply existence as an idea to things that are ultimately mental in nature. Right? And so we can say things which, you know, we can say, um, does the soul exist? Do I have a soul? Or does the self exist? And things like that. So what, what are we are meaning by this is when something appears in my mind, does it have a nature from its own side, independent of my mind, of being, right? And what emptiness is, is the statement to say that the world and self are empty of a self-existent nature of being the way they appear to be is to recognize that all that we can ever know and experience are what arises in the mind. This is not mysterious or mystical. This is a truth that very, very few people ever look at and acknowledge, but it's available to anybody that thinks about it. Um, You have a sensory experience. And there arises in your mind a concept of a thing. Now, where does that concept come from? How did it come to be in your mind? Were you born with a mind full of concepts? And just when you grew up, you learned which concepts to attach to which sensory experiences? We were conditioned. Well, or did we start out with just a really, really 
incredible array of different sensory experiences. And as a result of our cumulative encounters with these sensory experiences, did our mind sort them out and organize them as a bunch of different concepts to create a sensible world, a world that makes sense to us. And that's, that's what actually has happened. So, what the acknowledgement of emptiness is telling us is that all, the entire world, all of the reality that we know, has been created by our mind. It's been created as a result of sensory experience. And part of that sensory experience, of course, is that an intention or a wish or a desire has arisen within mind. And uh, then we have seen that action follows from that. But it's still a sensory experience. When you were a child, uh, a a desire arose, and so an action followed. Spontaneously, you didn't plan it, but uh, you opened your mouth and you filled your lungs, and you let. And the next thing you know, somebody was coming, making you feel better. And then later on, you developed all kinds of motor skills, and you know, you did things, and what you did produced results. But all of that was sensory. You saw it and felt it and heard it and so forth. So your entire experience is a result of your minds. Organization of sensation. And of course, um, if we look at our senses now, you might take the visual sense, right? And can you perceive pure visual phenomena? I mean, right now, try it with your eyes open. Can you perceive just uh, light? and uh, shades of brightness, which is, in fact, all that your eye is detecting. But can you do that? Is there anybody in the room that can do that? No. You see people and things. Yet, whatever is taking place is happening in your mind with a kind of immediacy that immediately asserts itself between what Logically, you know, from the point of view of physics and physiology, we can say, well, the truth is that light of different wavelengths and intensities is impinging upon cells in the retina. And they're sending nerve uh, impulses to the brain. But we can't even see a field of color and shape. We see things. It is so very, very pronounced in the visual sense. But it's happening with the other senses as well. You know, uh, sense of touch. The sensation is coming from uh, your, your left hand right now. Can you experience those sensations independently of the idea of handness? and whatever qualities that they have. 
So this is not to say, as sometimes people have done, that, well, nothing exists outside the mind, meaning that everything that's real is, is in the mind only. It's not saying that. There are the sensations that you experience. Of course, we can examine those more closely. And what do you find when you examine sensations? Well, at first you'll find the familiar labeled conceptual sensations of warmth and coolness and firmness and softness and touch and so forth. But then those are constructs of the mind as well. I mean, is there is there anything that, that literally and absolutely corresponds to softness or warmth? It's an interpretation that your mind makes. And of course, if you look closely enough, you'll find that what there really is is this sort of indistinguishable uninterpretable vibratory stuff that's delivered from your sense organs and your mind extracts the patterns out of it and gives them meaningful labels based on experience that this is painful, this is hot, this is cold, this is soft, this is firm, this is and so on and so forth. Oh, listen, do you hear that airplane? There is no airplane in the air vibrating in your ears. It only exists in your mind, you know. But can you even hear the vibrations or does the airplane motorness of it insert itself so strongly that maybe you can just a bit, but you can never really make the the uh, airline motorness of it go away. So this this is what we need. So if we recognize that, then of course the thing that we need to do is say, okay, if the reality I live in is created by my mind, why is it created this way? I mean, if my mind's going to create it, I should be rich, good looking, have (laughs) all the sex partners I want, uh, live in the most fantastic place, and so on and so forth, right? But for some reason, it just doesn't automatically happen that way, right? Why not? (laughs) 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 Is it losers? (laughs) I I, I missed that. Because we're losers. Because we're losers. (laughs) 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 That's the... Well... So what we can conclude is that if it was only our mind, and if our mind really belonged to some self that was the recipient of the 
pleasures and the endurer of the pains that are brought on by the mind's activities that you would think our mind would do a better job. So it's only reasonable to assume there is something else involved. But emptiness is the recognition that we may never know that something else directly in, in itself. But nevertheless, we find that everything that the mind does is somehow inseparably connected with whatever that is that is not immediately accessible or under the control of the mind. Which is fine. That's where we almost where we started, right? There was this world out there, and I'm trying to make my way in this world. So um, it's really good to understand and appreciate the idea of emptiness and to explore it, because it's not really, uh, yeah, well, sort of, okay, kind of thing. It's much more profound than that. We each live in our own reality, and we can never really know each other's realities, except at the particular level that we communicate to each other. But one of the interesting things about it is that that communication is actually what, that's the most powerful determining factor that affects how our mind creates our reality. There is, uh, because we communicate with each other, we have created a consensual reality. Our minds have created a consensual reality. And what this shared consensual reality looks like from in here may be very different from what it looks like in there or in there. But what's really significant about this is that this consensual reality is powerfully determining what this mind creates and lives in and what every other one of them. So we are we're very much interconnected in this way. Yeah. What, what's the relationship between emptiness and attachment? Well, the relationship is that when we don't recognize emptiness, we attach to things as though they are real. All attachment, you know, uh, to grasp requires both a grasper and a grasp. Right? So you have to have attachment, uh, the attacher and the attachee have attachment. Right away you have duality. And right away in bringing that, uh, in creating the perception of that duality, what we have done is created an object and given it a kind of reality and a self and given it a kind of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, if you, if instead you realize that all of the objects that are experienced as objects are in fact only projections of the mind and 
could be projected in many other ways other than they are. That's that's a thing that's subtle and I don't want to, to escape mentioning, is that it's not that our mind is projecting things in the only way that they can be projected. We have this filter that operates, and so we project a world of things according to all of our preconceived notions of the way that a world can be and what's possible, and we ignore anything that doesn't fit into that. Uh, We ignore it, or we change the way we perceive it, uh, or, or whatever. So, when you realize things are empty, you realize that any potential object of attachment has no self-existence and has no necessary qualities of being in any way the way that in the moment that you might be inclined to attach to it, that you perceive it to be. But as soon as we attach to it, then our mind is going to struggle as much as possible to maintain that projection against against evidence to the contrary for as long as it possibly can. Right? Oh, you've all experienced this. You ever fall in love with someone? And they're the most wonderful person that could ever possibly... You know, they're just perfect in every way. Has anybody ever have that, that experience? Yeah. Yeah. Which no. time? <laughs> well, I, I've heard tell what happens. But then time passes and uh, you realize that, well, they're not at all the way I perceived them to be. You know. Well, this happens to us all kinds of, all the time in all kinds of ways. But we're always being confronted by the experience that we see things one way, and then later on we discover or realize, oh, well, they're not the way. They're, they're really this other way. But you know what? None of those ways are any more real than the other. They are all just different projections. <laughs> so she wasn't really the most wonderful girl that ever lived, and she wasn't really the nasty bitch that you divorced. <laughs> It's all, it's all just projections. And that's actually, that's the essence of emptiness. I mean, you can plummet to its depths, and you need to, and you should. But that's the essence of it, is recognizing that all you will ever experience by means of your mind is the mind's own projections. The mind is always turning back on itself and seeing its own projections, its own creations that it has created to make a sensible world out of a totally incomprehensible, almost infinite stream of sensory information that will never stop for a moment. Part of this sensible world, though, I mean, you know, it's like when you start to draw a figure on a piece of paper, it you can't draw a figure that doesn't have a center, right? Well, I mean, you start out with a single point, but, you know, uh, even a short line segment 
has a center. Right? Uh, it's an analogy, it's a metaphor. But when your mind begins to create a world, the world it creates has a center, of course. And what is the center of your world? You. <laughs> <laughs> Me. <laughs> Yeah. So part of world creation is the self. And it becomes more and more elaborated as we go along. But this self is just as empty as everything else that the mind projects. I mean, okay. I have, yes? I have a question about that. Within the context then of the, of the emptiness and the projections that you experience, how do you reconcile that with the, the ideas that a sense of community or you know, being bonded is, is good for longevity and, and being healthy? Because it's, it's like recognizing your friendships or the connections that you feel with some people, whether it's opposite sex or just you know, friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, well, I really appreciate this projection I have of you, and you really appreciate the projection you have of me. Mm-hmm. Well, this is very, very much a part of it. Yes, we rely, we rely so much on each other to help each other create a stable projection that whose emptiness is not too obvious. <laughs> so we need to be part of you know we're trying to create some certainty out of a reality that contains none and we're, and we're, we're trying to, uh, out of an ultimate truth that has no substantial way of being to it at least it's accessible to us and so we rely on our community our connections our, our, our others and as human beings, this is such a critically important thing for us. The, the world that you have created, you, you did, your mind didn't do it independently. Your, uh, all of the adults that interacted with you when you were an infant helped to shape that perception. And then your, uh, as you got older, your teachers in school and your peers and more and more information comes in. So you have, you have inherited uh, a world. You've, you've created a world, but you've also inherited a lot of the infrastructure of that world from, from other people. And you know what happens to people when they spend a lot of time in isolation is they begin to struggle with they're uncertain about reality, including they're uncertain about their own identity and who they are. And that's because our, our minds, uh, although our minds can do a fantastic job of creating a really good projection of reality, we need each other's help to sustain it. You know, I mean, I really, I need you to come here and reinforce my reality, and we all need to reinforce each other's reality because. Otherwise, it's always in danger of beginning to unravel. And so we do that. <laughs> and you were working on unraveling it. 
What's that? And yet we're working on unraveling that. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I am here working on breaking down my illusions. Absolutely, that's right. So, which is, in that sense, unraveling right. this very rigid system that has absolutes in it. That's right. Based in beliefs. Yes. Because, because we can see, and once you realize that you're, you're trapped in a mirage, you would like to get out, right? Yeah. Or at least, if the mirage isn't as comfortable as you'd like it to be, you'd at least like to modify it and make Better it more mirage. comfortable mirage, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know the mirage is great. What's that? Some of the mirage suits me well. Well, and if the mirage is if the mirage is great, then there's one possibility is that you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to explore anything that threatened the stability. But then again, if you have a lot of comfort in the in the empty world in which you exist now, that very comfort and stability may give you the courage you need to try to see where else you can go, how much further you can go. And this is in fact what we see. The the more the more difficult and stressful the existence that we're we're trapped in, the more difficult it is to to look to to look beyond that. Except my time, at least my perception of it, my times of my greatest growth in enlightenment have come out of my worst pain. Mm-hmm. So how does that fit? <laughs> well, uh, it fits because no matter what I say about it, there's going to be exceptions because it is all empty. <laughs> That's not really... I mean, if, if we really want to look at it and say, okay, how does... Because this is what we really want to do. We want to look at our minds and say, okay, well, why is it... Why is it that if everything's going well, I would want to penetrate to a deeper truth? You know, if I, I would go, why wouldn't I just want to relax and enjoy it? Because sometimes people do. Sometimes when everything is going really well, they will fight very hard against, you know, I mean, the last thing that they would uh, respond to is your suggestion that you go meditate and discover the emptiness of things. But other people would. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between that. And I think what you would find underlying that is that those people who don't want to change are grasping very, very tightly to the the success and the the pleasantness and the satisfactions that life has, and the reason they're doing that is that at some deep level of their being, they know that this can't that last, and and they know that it's not really satisfying them, and so they're just trying that much harder. So it just drives them to hold on more tightly. Whereas there's, in a sense, um, their their sense of self isn't as strongly 
and comfortably developed as they would pretend. And that's why they are clinging to the illusion mm-hmm. in which they live. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the other person, that they, they, there's, their ego structure is strong enough and healthy enough that it dares to look at its own nature and it dares to consider the possibility that there, there is something else. There is someplace else to go. In terms of pain, uh, I think if you think of so many people in this city who are uh, basically entrapped in their suffering, they're living in situations, they have relationships that is constant uh, fighting, struggle, pain, dissatisfaction. Um, they, uh, they may involve drugs, they may involve uh, uh, poverty or wealth or whatever, but there's a lot of misery there. <laughs> and they are so preoccupied with their constant struggle uh, that there is no opportunity for a recognition that this may all be an illusion. They're totally bought into it. This is real. My pain is real. And don't bother me with this other stuff. I've got to do something about my pain. You know. So they're attached to the pain. Uh, they're they're attached to the belief in the reality that is causing them pain, and so they believe that if they can change that reality, then they they can escape their pain. And so you get out of my way. I've got to do something about my suffering. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that a person can't experience suffering and look at it and say, you know, this this can't be all there is. There must be something more. And perhaps to reflect on their previous experiences when the suffering wasn't there and to get some glimpse that, you know, it's not really the circumstances that I live in, but it's the way I react to it that creates my suffering and my happiness. As soon as that inkling arises, then this opens the door to all kinds of possibilities. And this is really what it's about. When you discover that the quality of your reality is not dependent on circumstances external to you and beyond your control, then you immediately start to acquire a very strong interest in learning what are the principles by which your, your mind uh, creates happiness or, or misery out of the stuff that life presents you with. Mm-hmm. There was other questions over here. Did, you, did they get lost? I would like to come back to this example you said when when somebody is deprived of community, for example, the loss of identity, mm-hmm. isn't that then in that concept a much healthier state of being? We say it can be a psychic uh, um, 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 affliction then, but isn't that... Well, <clears throat> what is healthy is to is to realize the emptiness of the self-image, not to have the self that you cling to become ragged and broken. And, and that's the difference. 
Now, in solitude, with the right with the right guidance and with the right practices, without the external supports to the idea of who you are, as it begins to fall apart, this may be your opening to realizing the emptiness of the self. And so it can, of course, be very positive in that way. But um, the in most of the people where you know they've been put in a in a cave underground, or if some of them they were this they were put in rooms in high rises in New York City, but people have been put in isolation. They've studied the impact on it, and, and the impact of isolation uh, it, it can become you know psychologically very very difficult to bear. <clears throat> but then people go into caves in the Himalayas for years at a time and deliberately do the same thing. In the one case, they're ordinary people who firmly believe in the reality, uh, in, the, in the substantial self-existent nature of external reality and the substantial self-existent nature of their perceived ego self. And so uh, this makes it psychologically difficult for them. The other group has already, you know, they have already learned and been able to assimilate understanding that these are illusions and that there is much to be gained by getting beyond those illusions. So the emptiness then, <clears throat> emptiness applies to the world and to the self. That it is something that the world and the self are something that happens inside the mind. And the other way that we can easily go with this is say, well, gee, I guess the mind is the only thing that's real. The mind is reality. And what that fails to recognize is that the mind, just like the self and the external world, is another perception. The mind, too, is empty. And what does emptiness mean? The mind, too, is lacking any self-nature of being the way we perceive it to be. So your mind is just as empty as everything else. My mother used to say that. <laughs> Little did she know. <laughs> so how is this? But how is this good news? Well, the thing is, <laughs> it opens up a vast range of possibilities. And it means that if we can understand more about the nature of the mind, if we can if we can get beyond the first layer of illusion of the way we have always thought of the mind, and if we can get beyond the first layer of illusion of who we have thought we are, 
And if we can get beyond the first layer of illusion of the world that we think we live in, and understand how those illusions arise, then we can very quickly and, and very easily find a very different kind of self occupying a very different kind of reality, uh, for that matter, created by a very different kind of mind, which doesn't, which doesn't mean that <clears throat> it's any more ultimate than before, but it sure could be a lot improved. So, um, essentially, that is, that's what is known in Buddhist terms as the first stage of enlightenment or stream entry. When, when you come to fully realize the emptiness of self and the emptiness of the world, the mind-created nature of it, then you are transformed in a, in a way that is radically... You're transformed in a way, first of all, that ir- is irreversible, and that's why it's called stream entry. But you're transformed in a way that qualitatively changes uh, your existence from that point on. And now... At that point, you no longer need to suffer because your mind-created world is not behaving the way that you want it to. Even better, you don't have to inflict suffering on other beings because your mind-created world isn't the way that you want it to be. So it's pretty wonderful. What it means is that you are going to have a lot more happiness and a lot less sorrow in your life, and that you are going to manifest a lot more virtue and compassion in, in your behavior. So this is this is the first stage. This is this is where you want to get to. And how, so how do you get from here to there? And that's what, that's what I call soul creation is going to be about. It's going to be about coming to understand the nature of your mind and how it works so that you can change the way your mind is producing your world. Even though, even though things still don't, uh, things still seem to be real from their own side. But if you can understand that they're not, then you can work with that, even though they still seem to be real from their own side. And even though you still feel like you are a self, have a self, if you understand that it's not the kind of single, enduring, separate thing that you thought it was, then you can you can work with that and you can become 
a very different kind of being. You don't have a single, enduring, separate and independent soul or self. You can, what you can do, though, is you can create a mind that is sufficiently unified in terms of its uh, goals and objectives and values that it functions with a lot more integrity. You know, integrity comes from integral oneness. You can have a mind that is much more soul-like than the scattered, internally conflicted, struggling mind that you started with. If you do that, this soul-like self that you're molding yourself into becomes far more robust and stable, far less easily disturbed and distorted and bent out of shape by other things that happen around you. Because when all the different parts of your mind are functioning coherently and cohesively in an integrated way and with a a single set of of conditioned uh, goals and principles, it's very strong. It's very robust. It is is very soul-like. But the best part of all is that if you recognize that not only are you not separate and independent from everything else, that all of your problems have come from thinking of yourself in that way, that part of self or soul, the separate independent part, can be flipped around 180 degrees so that you now experience a unification with all that is. Whatever terms you want to think of that, you can become one with the all, one with God, uh, one with your own true nature. Uh, It doesn't matter, but it has some remarkable profound results. You are no longer a self that is constantly struggling and at the mercy of the other that might say or do uh, something or that uh, some force of nature that is going to impact on this vulnerable self. And this is actually how you bring about that unification and the robustness. You know, I talked about changing, changing the, uh, the, the goals and the conditioning and the programming of all these different things that make your mind up. This is how you, this is how you do it. That you, you become an entity that operates for the good of the whole, that perceives itself holistically as an integrated part of all that is. And this removes the conflict. The Instead of all of these very conflicting ideas of what should I do and what shouldn't I do, you know, it's replaced with what serves the best interests of, of the whole. It becomes simpler and clearer and more direct. 
How do you get there from here? You practice virtue, generosity, patience, uh, and you do the, the mental training practices that give you the concentration and the mindful awareness that you need to bring these changes about. Do you, any questions? Do you get the picture? I mean, it's, uh, mm-hmm. I really want you to get the picture. And you notice we haven't talked about, you know, well, this is ultimate reality. Your true self is one We're not worried about that. Right? We're worried about let's get to this place where, you know, the reality that li- you live in and that you experience in your modified selfhood is a far more more wholesome, satisfying, rewarding, enriching kind of reality. And then once you get there, we can see what lies beyond. Because uh, in uh, in the Buddhist tradition, the stream entry that I just talked about is only the beginning. (coughs) There's four more stages. Uh, there's a lot more to be done, but we have to we have to get we have to get started first. Yes. What does the stream represent when you talk about stream entry? Well, it has. Uh, what does the stream represent when we talk about stream entry? Uh, there are more than one metaphorical applications of, of that from in the, in the original teachings of the Buddha. But there are two in particular that uh, I think. First is that he often spoke of crossing the stream. And on one shore, uh, we're uh, pursued by all of our demons and we're living the we're living the lives that worldly people do, uh, which uh, are ultimately unsatisfying and despairing. Uh, on the other side of the stream is the full enlightenment of an arahant <coughs> Buddha. And so the metaphor, re- uh, the first metaphor refers to entering the stream, entering the first, uh, in- entering into into the path that once you dive into the stream, you're going to keep swimming till you get to the other shore. Is there a danger of being carried down the stream? Well, um, actually, there is, and we're mixing metaphors a little bit here. But the other, the other metaphor of the of the stream entry is that once you have stepped into the stream, you are carried by the current. You know, and so they uh, they say that uh, once again it's, a, it's still another metaphor that once you have attained stream entry, then your enlightenment, your full <coughs> enlightenment, your your Buddhahood or arhatship is assured within an absolute minimum of seven lifetimes, which is uh, once more a metaphor. But the idea is that once you've entered the stream, that the current 
will, you know, you've been grasped, grabbed by the current and it will carry you to the goal. But, okay, well, I probably said more than enough, but the, the thing that's really important that I want you to make sure that everybody's clear on is, is that, is that uh, these fundamental insights into emptiness and no self, you, you need these. these. These are the tools that are going to make everything else possible. You don't have to be able to step out into the world and directly realize the mind-created nature, the emptiness of everything that you experience. You only have to understand it clearly enough that you begin to catch your mind in the act and you really understand how you can change that. The same thing with the self. You don't have to no longer feel as though you are a separate self and you don't have to expect or especially pretend that you no longer have an ego self that is going to respond to praise and cringe at blame and, and experience suffering and so forth. All you have to do is to look deeply enough that you can see the truth that this is an illusion and so when your mind is attaching to its image of ego self that you can say, aha, look, that's what it's doing. It doesn't have to do that. But it's the beginning work of shaking this mistaken view that you've always had. You know, the view that we all have, that that I am this discrete separate self doing my best to be happy and avoid suffering. And there's this world out there that I have no control over that I'm constantly struggling with and trying to manipulate to make it happen. Because by now, you've all learned that that doesn't really work. So it must be a real relief to know, ah, it's not that way at all. There is no such world. I'm getting hooked on something throughout your talk yeah. from time to time, so I wanted to ask you about it. Okay. You're using the word understand, and in my experience with my practice, I have found that when I um, stopped trying to understand, which I was failing at anyway, mm-hmm. and started allowing myself to experience, yes. that that was much more valuable for me. Um, and yet, um, I'm saying that's what it appears to be. Mm-hmm. Perhaps um, it's just me, or perhaps I mean I I, mm-hmm. I have a lot of trouble with understanding in this practice, mm-hmm. um, and it hasn't show, been shown to be useful for me so far. But that's the word you've been using, so I wanted to ask you. Well, that's a very good example of what we mean by understand. Uh, one way of understanding is through uh, logical analysis of concepts. 
And another way of understanding is through uh, direct experience. And they both have very important roles to play. Now, you're not really going to realize no self and emptiness until there is some sort of direct experience of them. But that doesn't mean that you can't examine the assumptions that you've been working on all your life and realize their falsity. And by doing so, it's going to make it easier for you to have uh, the direct experience. So both play a very important and complementary role. But we do run into a problem if we start to get them out of place. Now, your conceptual thinking mind is going to stand directly between you and whatever it is that you might otherwise experience directly. I mean, when we say direct experience, uh, that's direct as opposed to what? Well, as opposed to the indirect experience of conceptual and logical fabrication. So, if you find yourself analyzing and thinking when you should be simply observing, then that's not going to be an effective way to practice. On the other hand, if you never examine the assumptions that you're living your life on, then you're going to remain at their mercy. So you have to examine them. It's very important to. And not only that, the more clearly that you can intellectually understand emptiness, the easier it will be to experience emptiness. And actually, we all experience emptiness all the time in little ways, constantly. But we don't know what we're experiencing. And so we disregard it or reinterpret it. Whereas if you understand it, then when it, you begin to recognize it when it presents itself. And, and that's the way it happens. You know, It's not like all of a sudden you are just overwhelmed with this realization of no self and emptiness. Uh, there is a, a process by which you start to get more and more glimpses and the glimpses and the pieces start to fall into place. And some of the uh, some of the cruder illusions that get in the way start to start to fall away more easily. So they both have a role to play. And so I don't mean understand. Uh, you know, uh, there's kind of a limitation of, of words, I guess. I, I mean understand really in both of those senses rather than either one by itself. But like we were talking about earlier in being mindful of your experiences, being mindful of the Dhamma. Um, You have to allow yourself to just observe what's going on. Because otherwise, you're just going to repeat your same old habitual reactions to what arises that you always did. But that doesn't mean that once you've seen what's there, that you can't think about that and you can't have that sort of, you know, 
uh, response that we talked about earlier, looking at it, say, "Oh, this really isn't serving me at all." You know, so they, they they're not mutually incompatible, but they <coughs> occupy different places in the process. If you were to mistakenly say that, think that being mindful of the dharmas in, in your daily life meant to go around analyzing all the time, you'd exhaust yourself, you'd get so you wouldn't get anywhere at all. But also, if all you did was look and you never reflected on what you'd seen, uh, then you would be doing yourself a disservice as well. Because you wouldn't be really assimilating in a deeper sense and opening yourself up to further seeing. Does that help? <coughs> 